Our Father, thank you so much for your word and for the Lord Jesus, whom we meet here in Luke's Gospel. We pray that you would help us to see Jesus clearly and help us to be of those who will not just simply dismiss him, but would respond with the response that you desire, that we would repent and turn away from our sin, that we would throw ourselves on Jesus' mercy and his grace, knowing that he is our only hope in life and in death. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, uh, we are in Luke's Gospel. We're meeting Jesus as uh, week by week we keep following Luke's account of who Jesus is and why he came into the world. And tonight we get a little bit of a rare glimpse into the person and ministry of Jesus. One of the things that happens as people meet Jesus is that they're changed forever. Uh, There is a response that Jesus requires of people and there's a response that Jesus challenges people with. And so when you encounter the real Jesus in history through the scriptures, you're not meant to be left in the same place that you were when you started. You're meant to be moved. And actually, when we got to the end of that reading that Tom just finished for us, we see Jesus having a go at the people who cannot be moved by him. They're stuck in their own self-sufficiency. They're stuck in their own self-righteousness. They're stuck in their own self-satisfaction. So much so that when they're confronted with the Lord of life, the one who brings peace on earth, the Saviour and the King, they can't be moved. So Jesus says it's like a wedding and you wouldn't celebrate. It's like a funeral and you wouldn't grieve. You just can't be changed. You can't be moved. But the people who would responded rightly to Jesus, the people who would be moved, Jesus says they're the ones who were baptised by John. Why is that the significant thing? Did you see that at the end of, chapter, of, of the reading? Uh, when Jesus says in verses, sorry, when Luke says in verses 29 and 30, he compares the people who were baptised with John, they're the ones that respond rightly. Those who weren't baptised by John, they're the ones who didn't respond rightly because they couldn't be moved. The significant thing is that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. So if you were baptised by John, that's a sign of repentance, that you've been confronted with the good news of Jesus and you've been moved. You've turned, you've changed, you've turned in your mind and your heart and your actions away from yourself and your sin and towards Jesus. But a refusal to repent is a refusal to change, to not be moved, to be confronted by Jesus, the Lord of life, peace on earth, the Saviour King, and to be stuck in self-righteousness and self-satisfaction, right, and self-sufficiency. So the big thing for us to think about is how we might be moved by Jesus, moved to repentance, and moved towards faith, faith in him. Uh, When you look at how people respond to the good news of Jesus in Luke's Gospel, amazement is one of the responses that you kind of shown to be a right response to Jesus. So, chapter 1, the angels are amazed at the news of Jesus' birth. Jesus' parents were amazed by his teaching when he was 12 in the temple. Right? 
as Jesus keeps teaching people with authority, as he heals sickness and disease, people keep being confronted with him and being amazed. They're moved. They're impressed. When you see Jesus heal the sick, cast out demons, teach with the authority of God and raise the dead, you're meant to be impressed. But here's the thing, we get a rare glimpse into the person of Jesus tonight because in this chapter we have uh, one of only two times in the Bible where Jesus is amazed. It's not so much that people were amazed at him, is that he was amazed. And what is it that amazes Jesus? It's the faith of a Roman centurion. And so as we think about how we might be moved by Jesus towards repentance, in amazement, in faith, moved to faith in him as saviour and king, we're going to look at what the centurion does that amazes Jesus. What is it about his faith that makes Jesus respond in such a way? Did you see that in verse 9 of chapter 7? Verse 9, when Jesus heard this about the centurion and his words, what he had said about Jesus... He was amazed at him. Turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. What is it about the centurion's faith that was so amazing? Uh, As Christians, we are people of faith, people of trust in Jesus. That's what we're meant to do when we respond to him. And I wonder, if you're anything like me, and my guess is that you're, you know, like me, there's similarities. There's probably times, if you're a Christian, that you doubt your faith. Do I have enough of it? I wish I had that person's faith. I wish my faith was deeper or stronger or something. It's funny, because as a minister, people assume that you are uber-faith, Right? And so people will say, I wish I had your faith. I wish I could have faith like you. As if it's some kind of quantity, as if it's about the veracity. But Jesus sees something in this man's faith that amazes him. And it proves, I think, as something of a model for us to think about how we might respond to Jesus. So let's work through the story, right? Jesus, we read in verse 1, and just finished saying all this. He just finished that big sermon that we've been looking at for the last few weeks. And as he's been teaching about his kingdom, about discipleship, about what it means to follow him, he turns and goes to a new place called Capernaum. Now, it's not that new because he's been there before. We've seen him healing there. We've seen him casting out evil spirits. It was back in Capernaum when the old mate came down from the ceiling to be healed, the paralysed man. Right? It's in Capernaum where Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. And so we know this place. It's a place where Jesus has been and where he's become famous. So people know who he is and what he's doing. There we read in verse 2, a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. We see a centurion. Right? He's a person of authority. He's in charge of a hundred soldiers. He's enforcing the Roman rule placed in Capernaum to keep the peace, to keep order, to enforce Roman rule and occupation in this place, to keep the crowd in hand. This is a powerful man. He's a man of position. He's a man of status. He's a man of authority. And he has a valued slave who is sick. 
Now, as the people come to Jesus to gain his trust and to get him to come and help in this situation, they appeal to how great this guy is. This is a good guy, Jesus. He helps us. He's helped us build synagogues. He's acknowledged that worshipping God in the right way is important. He's cared for people. He deserves Jesus to come and help him. And we often think like that, don't we? This is a nice person. They deserve Jesus. They deserve his grace, his kindness, his help. And he's a powerful guy. He's an important person. He can summon people, he says, and they'll come. He can dictate terms and send people to do what he needs them to do. But here's the thing. A good guy who's powerful and wealthy, who has status and position, who has authority, and he's confronted with mankind's greatest trouble and need, and he's utterly powerless. Confronted with death and sickness and the ravaging effects of sin in the world under God's judgment, this powerful, authoritative, rich, nice guy can do nothing. And so here's the first thing I think that amazed Jesus. That someone like this would throw up their hands in the face of sickness and death and say, I can't. I don't have the resources for this. I don't have the ability for this. I don't have the authority for this. I don't have the power for this. And friends, isn't that the predicament of our world today? Right at this moment, with all our education, with all our science, with all our technology, with all our progress, with all our money, a tiny microscopic virus can wreak havoc in the world. And nations and rulers and kings and bankers and people with power and authority and status and good people and jerks all alike are like, we can't do this. Surely, If any day today is the one where we can go, we need something greater. And the smart thing to do is to do what the centurion does when he has to throw up his hands in the face of sickness and death and he needs to come to Jesus, recognising that he's our only hope in life and in death, in the face of humanity's greatest issue, Jesus is it. He has the power. He has the authority. He has the grace and the kindness and the willingness to do something about it. I don't know why, but some one of my children this week asked me about Michael Jackson. You know, asking people from history. <laughs> you know, let's talk about Michael Jackson. So, Michael Jackson, 13 years old, He was getting $200,000 a week, right? When he was older and his career was kind of on the descent, he sold his half share in the Beatles catalogue for a billion dollars. Just 
to prop up his lifestyle a little bit. All the fame, all the money, copious amounts of medical intervention. When he died, he had his doctor by his bedside. None of it could stop the reality that meant he was dead at 50. And when we don't have those kinds of resources to throw at sickness and death, surely we can recognise we need to throw up our hands and say, we need Jesus, the author of life who stepped into the world to deal with sin and death, to be for us our only hope in life and in death and to provide for us the solution that we so desperately need and that God so graciously provides before, before Jesus makes it to this guy's house, he sends messengers and says, don't come, I don't deserve you. That's a recognition of faith, isn't it? Despite what everyone else is saying, despite what my credentials say, despite what my CV says and my bank balance says, despite what's written on my business card, despite what all these people think about me, I know I'm not worthy, Jesus. But... I do know that you say the word. Your word is powerful. Your word is authoritative. Your word is life-giving. You say the word and my servant will be healed. That's what's amazing about this man's faith. He knows how power works. He knows he doesn't have the resources. He knows his only hope is to throw himself on the mercy of Jesus and to trust in Jesus' authoritative, powerful, gracious, life-giving word. That's what's astonishing about this centurion's faith. And Jesus' challenge, I think, is for us to be like that. We don't deserve you. We don't have the resources. We need you, Jesus. Second little bit of story we get is Jesus taking this a step further. He doesn't heal the sick, but he raises the dead. We read in verse 11, Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, Don't cry. Here's my hot tip. If you're ever doing pastoral care for a grieving mother don't cry are the worst possible words you could say that's dumb dumb pastoral care a mother who has lost her only son who has no other social support structure no other income no other way of living let alone the broken relationship and the loss of her child she should be crying She should be grieving. That's totally right and good and proper that she does that. The only way that you say don't cry is either you're psychotic, right, and you don't understand, or you're Jesus and you know you can raise the dead. 
The only way that don't cry is the appropriate thing to say to a grieving mother whose son's on a coffin being carried to his burial place. The only way that you can say don't cry is if in moments from now this boy will stand up and be reunited with his mother and have that relationship restored, having death defeated even if temporarily. Which is exactly what happens, right? Because Jesus has that power, because Jesus has that authority, because Jesus' life-giving word can raise the dead. John writes in John chapter 5, actually Jesus says, I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Jesus speaks to the dead boy and he stands up. And what a beautiful, beautiful little detail that Luke includes. The dead man sat up and began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Because that's what Jesus is about. It's not simply the raw power and authority that Jesus displays and then says, did you see that? The reason that he exercises that power, the reason that he has that authority and he uses it with his life-giving word is in order that he might give this boy back to his mother, in order that he might restore relationships that sin and death destroy, in order that he might reconcile the world that is separated from God, reconcile us back to our Heavenly Father. That's The point of it, not simply the display of power and authority, but the restoration of relationship, the giving of life back to the world. And once again, the response of people, they're moved, they're filled with awe and amazement and they praise God, which is what you should do when you're confronted with Jesus. Today is exactly one year since I stood in a hospital room at uh, Royal North Shore Hospital with one of our dear sisters who had just died. Her family was at church this morning to mark that one year. And as I stood here behind this pulpit thinking about what Jesus has just done, I couldn't help but think that the question must be in their mind. If Jesus can raise the dead and give life to the world, why is Jack still dead? Because I wonder if that prominent question should be in each of our minds, this wonderful picture of Jesus' grace and his kindness, his power and authority, his life-giving word, and yet we still get sick. And yet our loved ones still die. And yet sin and death continue to pull apart relationships and wreak havoc on this world. Why doesn't Jesus heal everyone? Part of the answer comes a bit later on because John the Baptist is in prison and he's wondering, has Jesus actually come as the saviour king of the world? because I kind of thought more stuff would happen. 
And what's Jesus' response to John the Baptist? He says to him, go and tell John, verse 22, that the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Once again, what we have here are the echoes, not even echoes, the explicit references to the book of Isaiah some 700 plus years before Jesus, where God kept promising that he was going to renew his world and restore relationships and bring people into the joy of his eternal kingdom. And the picture was that when God shows up in history in the person of his son, these are the things that would happen along the way. That as God walks into the world in order to establish his kingdom, these are the kinds of things that would happen. And Jesus is saying not that everyone right now is going to be healed, not that everyone who has died is going to be raised right now, but that he has come to bring in God's new creation. And the picture we get, this great picture in the book of Isaiah, is that this son of God, the servant of the Lord, who would come as king and saviour, he would lead God's people on this highway that leads to the new creation. And Jesus is saying, as you see these signposts, it's his call to say, come and join me on the road to the new creation. And in chapter 9, we we see crystal clearly that that road is the road that leads to Jerusalem where he'll be executed on a cross for the sins of the world in order that one day all the dead will be raised. Some to everlasting life if they've trusted in Jesus and some to everlasting death if they've refused to be moved by him. The signposts of Jesus healing, of him raising the dead, of the blind seeing, of the good news being proclaimed, they're all calls, they're all warning signs, they're all reminders, they're all announcements. Come and join Jesus on the road to the new creation, to his eternal kingdom that he's establishing by his power and his authority, by his life-giving word, by his death on the cross for the sins of the world and by rising to new life, that he might be our only hope in life and in death. And so here's the challenge. as you meet Jesus, the Jesus of history in the scriptures and you're confronted with his power and his authority and his life-giving word, his grace and his kindness, can you be moved? Can you be moved from self-righteousness and self-sufficiency Can you be moved from self-satisfaction or even self-loathing in order that you might not just simply be amazed at Jesus and admire him, but that you might join him on the road to the new creation, that you might trust in him as saviour and king, that you might bow your knee to him and submit your life to his authority, to his power, to his grace, to his kindness... 
that your life might be caught up with his as you throw up your hands and say that in the face of sin and death and sickness, no matter who I am and what I have and what I've done, I don't have the resources for this. I need you, Jesus. And I implore you to do that and implore you to live that and to share that. And I implore you to be amazed and moved and humbled by this Jesus. Shall I pray for us? Let's pray. Our Father, don't let us leave here tonight unmoved by Jesus, remaining in our own sin and self-righteousness and self-satisfaction, but move us to repentance, to change our minds and our hearts and our actions in light of Jesus, that we would entrust ourselves to him both now and forever, that we would recognise that we need his power, we need his authority, we need his grace and kindness, we need his death and his resurrection, we need his forgiveness, we need his life-giving word. Move us, we pray, and help us to stand amazed at him. We pray it in his name.